This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. The supply chain disruptions that COVID has wrought have extended delivery times to once unimaginable lengths. Shortages of everything from foam to computer chips have led to wait times of anywhere from six months to 18 months, frighteningly common. While none of us has the skills to commandeer a cargo ship and bring it into port, figure out a way to unload containers more quickly, or reconfigure the schedule of delivery trucks, we all can try to come to terms with what appears to be a new normal, at least for the foreseeable future. We can't change that new reality, but we can change our responses to it and try to manage the expectations of those we work with, whether it's an angry client, a frustrated vendor, an overworked artisan, or a designer frustrated by a lack of options. Today, I have with me leaders in four different aspects of the industry who have been forced to learn how to manage the desires and the frustrations of clients, vendors, artisans, installers, and workers. Frank Pontario is a Chicago-based designer who founded his firm in 1994 and since then has won acclaim for his elegant and tailored rooms, sensitive historic restorations, and his furniture, fabrics, and lighting designs for companies including Lee Jofa, Arteriors, and Clarence House. He has received numerous awards and his work has been featured in virtually every Shelter magazine. Hello, Frank. Hey, Michael. How are you? Good. Glad you're here. Alex Schufer III is the CEO of RHF, which encompasses seven American furniture brands, including Century Furniture, where he worked for 21 years, as well as Hickory Chair, Maitland Smith, Pearson, and Hancock, and more. He is intimately familiar with the challenges facing the domestic furniture industry and was recently featured in a front-page story on the subject in the New York Times. Welcome, Alex. Oh, thanks for having me. Margaret Schwartz is the founder of The Modern Antiquarian which has a focus on Swedish and garden antiques and vintage pieces, which he sells online through Cherish and in partnership with several trade showrooms. Margaret started her career at Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia, where she first developed her passion for antiques, and then for six years ran The Summer House, a shop in New Canaan, Connecticut, which evolved into Modern Antiquarian. Hello, Margaret. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here. Finally, we have with us Chad Stark, who began his career in the startup and digital marketing worlds before joining his family's luxury rug and home furnishings company. Chad manages the day-to-day operations as CEO of Stark, and he also serves as president of Scalamandre, where he oversees 14 fabric lines, two furniture collections, and Henson Lighting, working to bring all these brands into the digital age. Welcome, Chad. Thanks, Michael. Excited to be here. So I want to get started. I think, Alex, maybe we'll start with you since you had the blessing and the curse of being featured in a story of the New York Times about the difficulties the domestic furniture industry is facing. You know, it's a blessing to be featured in the Times. It's also a curse because (laughs) if they're putting you on the front page, that means there's problems. So I would take it that you would say those problems aren't going away right away. So how has it been to handle the frustration, shall we say, of the current situation, shall we say, the post-COVID situation. <laughs> yeah, I think expectation setting is a whole new skill set that modern managers are refining these days. And 
you know, I, we've been in this really since the surge that began in the late 2020 period, but it didn't really become acute until the first half of 2021. And, you know, and for the furniture side of the industry in particular, it was coupled with the foam crisis precipitated by that, that ice storm down in Texas. And, and so we went from kind of accelerating a little bit quicker than we were comfortable to being completely out of control almost overnight. And that foam crisis, you know, really threw the handbrake on the train, if you will. So within about a four to six week period of time, we were recalibrating our entire customer base from a 12-week, 10, 12-week delivery timeframe to a 16, 18-week delivery timeframe. And then after that crisis began to subside, we were still in the mode of calling people back up and saying, we know we told you 16 weeks, but now it needs to be 18. We know we told you 18 weeks, but now it's 20. And I think the challenge for the customer base isn't so much the reset once, it's the multiple reset that's happened. They don't feel like they can get back on steady and stable turf. The sands underneath them are, are shifting. And, and we keep telling them that the date that we're giving them, the information we're providing is as good as the information we have today. And the problem is the pace of change from our own suppliers, from the supply chain itself, logistics, is so rapid that literally tomorrow we could get a new piece of information that negates what we told you today. And, and it makes us feel untrustworthy, but we truly are providing best information in the moment. And I just think it's, I think it's going to be another six to 12 months before we see true stability again. But I think what's happened and, and Chad and Frank and Margaret can speak to this is that we're getting better at buffering. We're getting better at putting into our information equations some buffer for the unexpected. <laughs> you know, that date making before COVID was all best case scenarios stacked back to back to back. And now we're sort of stacking worst case scenarios back to back to back with this idea that we may actually give you a date so further out than the best case expects it to be that when three things go wrong, we can still hit it. <laughs> So better to under-promise and over-deliver. But to do it in a, as data-driven a way as possible, instead of just guessing long. Right. We truly are trying to take in the factors in the supply chain and saying, if this doesn't happen, does it add one week or does it add six weeks? And it's tough. It's added a few gray hairs to my head over the last 12 months. I can only imagine that when you call these people and said, no, not 16 weeks, no, 18 to 20 weeks. There, you always didn't get a warm reception, shall we it's say? Always happy conversations. Always, yeah. <laughs> so glad to hear this. I just right. appreciate you calling. You know, it's uh, right. especially early, a lot of emotion, and right. and as expected. And and then there was a period where I think the emotion was tamped down a little bit. But when the dates changed again, and that really that's where right. uh, it's hard to control, and and certainly understandable from the designer standpoint why they're so disappointed is, you know, with some. Customers, we're on our third or fourth date change. And that's how do they go back to their client? How do they try to reset, you know, a high-end consumer's expectation that was built in the digital age when Amazon will tell you within 30 minutes of when your packages are going to be on your doorstep? Right. So Frank, I can only imagine that on occasion, and I don't want to imply anything, but I would imagine on occasion when you got those calls, you must have been 
a little frustrated and angry. And I would also imagine that when you then had to convey that information to your clients, that was an issue. So how do you go about dealing with that now? Has it gotten better? Are people more understanding? Because God knows supply chain has been in the newspapers virtually every day. Yeah, I mean, I think like Alex was talking about, everybody here, you know, Alex is dealing with case goods and soft goods, right? Margaret's dealing with a lot of shipping and containers and Chad's got dye houses and yarn houses that can't get yarn and all sorts of, of things. And of course we understand that. I mean, on the, the designer side of it, just to lend a little bit of perspective, we have the great pleasure of aggregating all of these issues and extending them to our clients. So for us, it's not just the sofa that's not on time, you know, or the rug that's not going to make it or the shipping container we can't get. There's only two companies in the U.S. that make insulation for ovens, and they were both in Texas, right? It's trying to get lumber for construction sites and all that. So, you know, this isn't a new story after the past couple of years. So I think clients understand it doesn't mean they like it. And certainly for us, I think the biggest hurdle is is twofold. One is we've built a reputation over the last 20 some years of being able to get things done and get them done on time. You know, from a reputational perspective, that's a problem, but also we hate letting our clients down. So delivering that news and quite honestly, it's on a daily basis. It's every day, another hurdle. And, you know, what we try to explain to our clients is that it's hitting us equally as hard. Things that we used to get paid to manage for eight to 10 to 12 weeks, we're now having to manage that exact same amount of product and logistics for those products for 24, 30, 40 weeks. Right. So we're not necessarily charging the client anymore to do that. But it hits us all across the board. Or a lot more so manpower, which I hadn't thought, a lot man hours of your staff. I hadn't really thought about that, you know? I mean, tons. you read in the paper that, you know, furniture costs and bits and the home had a great report on this. Furniture costs are up 12% due to inflation, but all the expenses involved behind the scenes are, have also gone up as well, obviously. Sure. I mean, we have someone who calls on every order every week, right? It's nonstop. So when those orders change, they all need to get updated. Then that has to go to the designers. And then, of course, the designers come to me because I'm the one who breaks the bad news. So you do that three or four or five times per project. It's no fun. It's yeah. really no fun. But I think most clients are understanding of it. We're completely transparent with it. And, you know, we're not dealing with substandard vendors. We're dealing with, you know, kind of A-list vendors. So I think everybody understands. We're just all doing the best we can. Right. Right. And Chad, now both rugs and fabrics have been really hit by all the changes. I mean, Vietnam was closed down. India was closed down. A lot of stuff that I know a lot of stuff you import. So how do you deal with all of the, the clients and the showrooms? I mean, you have your own showrooms that you have to staff there. How, how has that been for you guys? Yeah, I think Frank hit the point exactly where yarn is where it's creating the bottleneck for us. And obviously every different product category has its own bottleneck. And, you know, we didn't feel it so much in the beginning. We were able to respond quick enough where we placed a lot of big stock orders early. And in the beginning, we had a good amount of stock, but now we're in this phase where we have probably twice as much per skew of what we would have typically on order waiting to come in. 
but we're out of stock on so many of these things where the problem is not ordering, the problem is production. Mm -hmm. uh, and so for us, it's, it's had an interesting effect because you know about 40% of our business is handmade custom on the rug side. And that part of the business, same thing, the yarns are what's creating all the delays. We had a few new quick ship custom programs that we launched, I guess, say over the last two or three years where we're now stocking yarns. And even in that scenario, the supply chain, even though we have the yarn is all disrupted where right. we can't get things to the ports, they're not shipping on time, they're more expensive. And so it's interesting when you look at the fabrics and the carpets and across the spectrum of the products we offer, they all have different points of friction and bottlenecks, but all leading to the same results unpredictable delivery times, longer than average wait times. And so for us with our clients, I think Frank and Alex both hit the nail on the head in that managing client expectations through padding lead times, which is something we've always done, but maybe are getting more scientific about it now because I'd rather tell a client it's going to be seven months than three and it'd be six than tell them it's going to be five and be six. You know, that's just expectation management. So it's been challenging, but fortunately because of I think the diversity of our assortment, both in the carpets and in the fabrics, there are other options that we're finding, hopefully that are similar enough in stock. So the actual impact to our business hasn't been as significant as the impact to our inventory position. We definitely have a really big backlog. And so you know, for us, we look at that in some ways as a good thing, because it means we're going into next year with a kind of a head start. Because all of that carpet and all of that fabric will be delivered. It's just a question of right. when. And, right. and so, you know, we're definitely giving a lot more temporary carpet than we've ever given, which is, you know, we say it's going to be five months. It turns out it's going to be eight. Well, we'll give you a sisal that's a little less expensive while you wait for your $25,000 hand knotted rug. So that's happening a lot. But, but that's you know, also that's, an expense to you, right? That you have yeah, to cover and, that. And for sure. And that's always been something that uh, our company has done on the carpet and rug side, just never to this extreme. Mm -hmm. Temporary carpet. I mean, all carpet's technically temporary, but when you're waiting for a, a $30,000 custom rug, you're getting a $4,000 installed sisal works for the time being. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, as everyone here probably plans around, is a lot of installations happen around events. So if it's your family coming in the because holidays. they have the holidays, which is what's happening right now, you know, we're, we're trying to think creatively around what are the solutions we can do when <laughs> there's nothing we can do about getting the product quicker. And, right. you know, we're right. leveraging the diversity of our assortment to try right. to solve that. Now, Margaret, I wanted to ask you, because I know a lot of designers and Cherish, of course, has encouraged this. Say, if it's an 18 month delivery for your sofa, think about vintage, buy vintage, you know, and you vintage dealers are certainly have always been a major part of the design industry and, you know, a major part of really elegant rooms. But I would think knowing what the delays in shipping and knowing how much the cost of shipping has gone up. I was reading somewhere that, you know, it used to be like $2,000 or something that to rent a container or whatever. Now it's like $20,000. How do you keep things in stock? Because I'm sure more and more designers, I mean, the good news is 90% of the designers have been busier since COVID. But the bad news is that 90% of designers are busier and want their stuff and need to fill these rooms. So how are you dealing with that, Margaret? Well, the good thing is that antiques and vintage have it's sort of been due for a comeback. So over the past few years, I have really invested in the breadth and depth of my inventory. Right before COVID, I actually doubled my square footage of my warehouse. And that, that was purely by chance. 
but I felt that there was this growing hunger, this growing need for vintage and antiques. So I was well positioned when all of these different kind of factors hit, like everybody's talking about Texas and, and the foam, just the delays in shipping. I was well positioned at that point to be able to meet the needs of the designer, certainly in our area and definitely through Cherish nationally as well. So we're sending to Texas, to California, all of that. And it's been a wonderful experience, but also I just feel badly for everyone with all these frustrations that they have. But I would imagine that your warehouse is emptying out fairly quickly. And, you know, it used to be then you'd head off to Europe or or to Scandinavia to fill more containers and ship them home. But that you can't even go over, really. Well, I just got problems. back. Okay, got you did get from... to go over, right? Yeah, for a while you couldn't. Yeah, right. you can't so keep you... us out. <laughs> okay, and how about the shipping? Just to give give you know the designers listening a, a sense of the cost. Can you give me a sense of how much more that's costing you to ship sure. back a container? So there's obviously a lot of different things that go into it. One is all of that money is tied up in inventory overseas. So I have inventory that has been pre-sold that I can't get to clients. Mm -hmm. So that has been a different kind of frustration for them. As soon as it lands, I'm able to get it to them. So I started buying and filling containers. I was filling two different 40-foot containers because also I'm dealing with Brexit. So I had a 40-foot container coming out of England and a 40-foot coming out of France. I started buying for those in January and they didn't arrive until September. That's how how bad the backlog is right now. So I, as soon as it arrived, I decided that I was going to get over to England as soon as I could. And I actually, on a personal level, I feel the pain of everyone because I'm just refinishing a remodel of my apartment. So I'm mm-hmm. still waiting on, on a dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, appliance is a disaster. Yeah, I mean, yes. I've heard up to two year waits for appliances. Oh, don't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I understand what everybody's going through. But so I, as soon as I received those goods, the, the minute that I was able to get back over to England, I went and I've now filled another 40 foot container. I'll probably go back in January. It's, you know, the normal lead time used to be about three months. Like I could get a full container in about three months. And, and now it is pushing more towards six to nine months. So I'm just going to have to go over. And when I buy in January, I'll be buying for September. I'll be buying for the fall again. So it's almost like a continuous cycle. And how much is the shipping gone up? Astronomically, it's painful to even talk about. <laughs> it's very painful. It's uh, more than doubled for sure. And I think it's, yeah, I think it's the expectations that are it will continue to rise again. I just got a quote for a crate instead of a, a full container load. And I was shocked. It literally just for a crate is the same as what I normally pay for a, for a full, full 40 container. container. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and even once you get it to the warehouse, right, then all of a sudden you need a trucking company to come pick it up. And those costs have gone crazy. And quite honestly, there's right. They're so short on team members as well. I mean, both, you know, the truckers as well as the guys in the warehouses to to load up trucks and deliver. It's really systemic. It's it's been a, a big challenge all the way across the board. It's almost like dominoes. One falls and it affects everything else. Yeah, I think the number that they banner around is we're missing 70,000 drivers, truck drivers within the United States right now. And you think about the scale of that problem, it's not a solvable in a year or two years sort of problem. That's That's got to be solved on the demand side. We got to see an equalizing of demand back to some level of normal. And the other one, Michael, I think the number you were quoting, that two to 20, we experienced Two years ago, we would pay about $3,000 for a container from Asia. Now it's about twenty dollars to $21,000. Wow. So that's that 
you know, near six times, six to seven times increase in container freight rates. Wow. Even um, more, some, more than I realized. Yeah. If you check out the stock prices on those companies, Maersk and, and Costo and those guys, they're, they're parabolic. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're making money hand over fist. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying our podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I'm the co-founder and president of Cherish. If you're a designer who's struggling with long lead times from suppliers and increasingly impatient clients, now is the time to shop with us. Our vintage antique and one-of-a-kind inventory is ready to ship right now. To learn more, visit Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com. And now back to the show. But Alex, you have a big staff of artisans and craftsmen and furniture makers that you have to keep them busy. I mean, you're paying their salaries. So how have you been dealing with that? Well, staffing headaches, I think, are the newest of the supply chain problems. In the spring, we were sort of grappling, quite frankly, in the upholstery world with trying to pay people, even though we couldn't work them 40 hours because the foam crisis was keeping us from running our factories full we pivoted midsummer to full-time overtime, double-time. You know, we're at the point now where at least our company has about a 10% open job quantity. So we've got about 150 open positions at the moment that we would fill tomorrow if we could find the people. And, and from a standpoint of the people in this area, you drew a 50-mile circle. I'd say everyone in the industry within this area has the same so there's probably a need for something on the order of three or 4,000 additional furniture craftspeople within the North Carolina Piedmont area. You take that from a national standpoint across home furnishings, it's a real crisis of mismatch of skill to, to job type. And it's not going to be, we talk about a lot around here, we're not solving it in six months. This is a generational problem. It's going to take a while to bring youth into the industry and train them up to a level where they can can produce our products and it's it's across markets too i mean even on the you know the architecture and design side we're hiring for both offices both in chicago and naples and let me tell you it's just slim pickings for really talented qualified candidates you know that's the other part of the challenge for us too and it pains me to turn projects down especially good projects down but unfortunately we're having to pass on on projects um, and just focus on our core clientele. Yeah, I've heard that from other designers. A few of them that had to turn down work because they just cannot get the help they need, the staff. They need to execute the projects to the level that they want to do them, you know? Yeah, it's been interesting for us because, you know, we have similar problems. We raise the minimum amount that anyone makes at our company and our production facility, and we've increased our benefits. We've done a lot to try to grow retention, but we're now actually seeing a little bit of a swing back and it's been a little easier for us to recruit. One big change that we've done now, this doesn't apply to warehouse, our warehouse or any production facility is you know, basically all our corporate positions were entertaining completely remote offers. And so, you know, on our corporate leadership team, that reports directly to me, there's nine people counting myself, two of whom we hired this year. Both of them are nowhere near anyone else. One's in Baltimore, one's in Atlanta. And so we found that by removing the barriers of needing to be somewhere, which again, only works in certain types of jobs, right. it's really opened up the candidate pool to a much larger group. And because of that, this year, we've grown our company's headcount by like 20%. You know, We've added like 60, 70 positions to our company because we're not capturing the sale until the delivery happens, but we're anticipating 
We believe this demand for luxury home furnishings is going to continue. And the question is, are we going to be able to supply it all? But the demand we think is here to stay for at least a little bit, at least through next year. And so we're kind of gearing up for when things start hopefully getting better, which they, they have to at some point, they can't get much worse, that we have the team members that will allow us to facilitate and fulfill all of those orders without creating mental health issues for our team members, which earlier in the pandemic was absolutely a problem because people felt overworked. And when you have chaos going on around you, you know, everyone has their own story of how this has affected them. It's been very difficult to keep you know, a positive mindset. And so it's been a challenge, but the remote aspect has been a huge win for us. So Chad, I wanted to ask you about that. And, and Alex, you can, can weigh in here as well, because I would imagine that your staff in the showrooms went from this kind of creative, helping designer thing to almost being on the front lines because they must deal with the frustration of designers, clients every day that things are changing. And how do you deal with that? How do you help them to get the message out and to A, not go crazy and feel that they're being attacked? Yeah, that, I mean, they're always sort of key pieces of the administrative puzzle for us. I mean, their customer service first and foremost, and then their design support and assistance secondarily. But I think the core of the question is, how are we helping them get through this period of stress? And I think like Chad mentioned, we can see it on the shoulders of our people in the factories, management level, and especially the customer service, sales professionals, and showroom managers. No one wants to deliver bad news. And it's become not just a key aspect, it's probably the seminal thing that they're having to do every, every day and every week is update people on orders, on delays, on, on challenges. And there's not a real good system. Our, our showrooms for us are kind of islands. They're out there, you know, they're two, three people out by themselves in a major metropolitan area. And we are the whole rest of the tribe, if you will, is back here in North Carolina. And so we, we try to communicate a lot. We do a lot of weekly Zoom sessions. We try to see each other face to face and let them feel like they're part of a bigger collective. They're not out there by themselves, but it's tough. And, you know, I know... We've had a number of people that have, you know, I don't want to say they've had sort of breakdowns, but we've had tears and we've had, you need to go home early. You need to, you need to take a, a, a mental health day. And unfortunately, there's just no easy way through it. It's, it's just what has to be done. And I'm sure Chad's staff's having the same experience as just, you know, you almost in the good old days, you'd love when that customer walks in the showroom. Today, you sort of <laughs> dread it because they're probably coming in to check on something because they didn't like the answer they got over the phone, <laughs> right? And so if I go there in person, you know, then maybe I can get something done. And Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting when we think about foot traffic is it varies on locations, but like in New York City, for example, our foot traffic has actually never been higher than it is right now. We're getting more walk-ins than we've ever had in our main showroom uh, in New York. And a lot of the designers are citing that what we've always believed, you can see so much via the screens, you can communicate so much, sampling and requesting things, great, you can see the product, but in no way are we anywhere close to being able to replicate the showroom experience electronically at this point. You know, We have tens of thousands of products in our showroom and we'd love to have that the, all those same products on our website, we're not quite there yet. And so we're finding that designers who used to come in and spend three hours now come in and spend 30 minutes because if they're coming in, they're on a mission. They're not coming in to waste any time. And They're not so, browsing. Exactly. And so what's yeah. happened is all of these not serious inquiries have kind of gone away, which in some ways has allowed our sales team to be more efficient. 
which has been an interesting result from this. And I'd say the other thing that we we really did is we kind of beefed up our customer surveying and really just continuing to reorient the organization on the voice of the customer being the most important voice in the room at all times. You know, it validated some of the things we're talking about. So in over 50%, or I think it's close to 60% of all responses, positive or negative, the account manager, the one managing the relationship is mentioned by name, <laughs> which means... Mm-hmm doesn't matter what policies the company comes up with. The account manager controls the customer experience or influences it the most. But it's been insightful because most of the time when customers are not having a good experience, we're learning it's all about communication. It's all about expectation management. We're not saying, well, I was told it's going to be six months and then a monsoon hit and it's nine months and I hate you for it. It's, well, I was told the last minute that it was going to be delayed. And so it's been really insightful for us and for our sales team specifically to your question of having this continuous feedback loop directly from the customers, unfiltered comments from our clients, because it's reoriented everyone on what's important is the customer experience, because starting there funnels and fuels the rest of our business. What we talk about a lot in the office is the only thing that would upset our clients is them feeling like things are out of control, right? So if we can communicate, it's typically around time, it's typically around money. If we can clearly communicate those things up front, it alleviates a whole bunch of problems on the backside of things. But, you know, honestly, to Chad's point about designers going in, so our Chicago office is about two blocks from the Merchandise Mart. I mean, we have a great design library and it's a great office, but I think everybody kind of wants to get back out and, and see things. And is there anything new? Is there anything we can go out and find that someone hasn't seen yet? I think that's really important. And I think the designers are wanting that again. So, I think that's a big part of the day-to-day. I would suspect that one reason that your foot traffic is up so much, well, A, people are thrilled to be out of the house, even if they're just taking out the garbage after a year and a half. But I think, you know, textiles, rugs, upholstery, it's really a tactile business. And you need to see up close and touch and feel. And I think that there's pent-up demand for that. And Margaret, how do you deal with that? Because the same is true with vintage pieces, if not even more so, even case goods, you know, you want to see the patina, you want to see how the drawers function, you want to see the hinges. How do you deal with that? Because it can be so abstract to do things just online. It is. And I I even had trouble with that at the beginning when I was buying back in January, when I was not able to go over and see and, and touch things. That was difficult. And I had a little bit of a learning curve there. But helping clients understand, Cherish does a great job with that. Just being able to show all the different kind of construction of things. Like we sell a lot of case goods. So what the construction of the drawer is, trying to really describe as well as we can the finishes on things. And then of course we take returns, right? That's I think the huge thing that gives everybody so much comfort buying from a platform like Cherish where they know that they feel comfortable buying from a a vetted dealer. And then also that if it doesn't work out for whatever reason, they can send it back and and there's going to be support there from Cherish. Yeah. And in terms of buying now, obviously you can go back, although who knows, things are changing with Omicron all the time, whether you can go back to London, go back to Paris. So are you buying more things from Europe and other places online just now that you've had your bad experiences, shall we say, and you've learned your lessons? <laughs> so I work with specific people. Um, I work with Tama Clark Haynes, the Antique Steva. And so her team knows what I'm looking for. And they understand the kind of questions that I'm going to always ask, right? Like, I, I need a picture of, of the, that corner. I need a picture of the drawer. So it, there was a little bit of kind of an adjustment because being 
in person and seeing things, they didn't know that I always take a drawer out and flip it over and, and look at the underneath, right? They didn't know that I always did that. So now that they've seen me ask for a picture of the, uh, you know, the underside of a drawer, they they just manage that expectation, right? right. They're also managing me um, and right. kind of getting ahead of that and making sure that they get those requested pictures. It's still difficult and it's still one of the challenges that I have locally is, again, a different kind of lead time with craftsmen here to be able to have a repair done on a broken leg or repair a veneer. So I try to get pieces that are really in excellent shape. So there's right. not that kind of another weight then, right? Once I get a piece and having to to fix a popped veneer or something like that. So they know what I'm looking for, that the best quality, always buy the best quality you can afford. That's the number one lesson I have learned in life, in my profession, always buy the it's best quality. It's a good quality. mantra. <laughs> <laughs> now, Frank, I want to ask you because as Margaret was pointing out, so many different layers of things that have to be done. Like, what are installations like now when you do finally get the goods? Are you able to get the painters, the wallpaper people, all of that? It, it seems like every aspect of this industry is overworked, stretched thin, frazzled. So what is that like for you? Well, it's a whole lot of management, right? It's, I mean, it really is. It's That's amazing. an understatement. Well, yeah, I think, you know, most end consumers, especially, even if they've seen the show before, they don't know what goes in behind the scenes to make all this come together. We're fortunate, you know, at this point in my life, I'm not working with any newbie contractors. We've got some really great people out there who kind of understand how important it is for us to all pull this off in a, a coordinated fashion, makes it easier for everybody. I think like Alex and Chad have said, padding the time in a, a very smart, thoughtful way to make sure you, you've got a little bit of time in there for contingencies, which is going to happen. What's happened is once everything actually shows up at the warehouse, we've got to go out and inspect it all. Hopefully, nothing's damaged because right. then back to Margaret's point is finding a local craftsperson rather than putting it back on a truck and waiting right. six Shipping months it. to get it. Right. right. So it's really turned into a bit of a military operation for installs. Mm -hmm. It's just all hands on deck, highly coordinated. And quite frankly, we throw the kitchen sink at it. It's just we've gotten past the point of how can we be more like a scalpel with this? It's like, just let's get everything there. We're really organized about it. If we need extra people from other teams, bring them as well. And let's just knock it out as a big group. Whereas we used to be able to have a designer and an assistant go out and do it. Now it's two or three design teams because the delivery company might only have one day instead of three. Right. Right. So it's a challenge. Another designer mentioned to me that for her, the idea of the, the big dramatic reveal, you know, the bus drives away and you see the home, that that's kind of gone because with the delays and everything, she has to like do things over time. So you lose that impact moment maybe, but I think clients are going to be fine with that as long as they know they're getting everything within yeah. the time frame. The only problem we've ever had with the onesie twosie deliveries is, you know, a client spends huge amount of time and, and lots of money and then you show up with a chair. <laughs> um, you know, it's a huge letdown for everybody. Um, so, you know, at the very least, and, and we're kind of in that same boat, we won't do a delivery unless the room is 90% complete. Right. right. Just because otherwise it, it, the full composition of the space, just it, it won't yeah. make sense. And it's not right. what they were hoping for. Right. Right. Okay. Now, 
you know, this has been so informative and I think helpful, but I'd love to get a sense from each of you. And maybe we'll start with you, Alex. How do you see things changing, getting better, staying the same? What's going to happen in the year ahead? I think this level of business will begin to plateau. <laughs> you know, it's it's been on a... You say uh, that almost hopefully. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's <laughs> the main things I'm concerned about is the customer experience sort of writ large for home decorating, home design is something that for the generation right now doing projects, we don't want to leave a bad taste in their mouth, right? We, we want them back in doing another room or doing another home in a few years. And the ones that are in it right now who might have been putting off projects for a long time, you don't want them to say, my God, I, you know, I redid the living room. It took twice as long. It cost 20% more. Nothing showed up. The drapery installer was terrible, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And they go, honey, let's toss out the master bedroom. Let's just go to the islands. You know, I mean, what you want them to, we have to get it together, you know, and it's not that there's not a whole lot of effort being applied to creating good experiences, but we're just the cards we've been dealt are a tough hand right now. So I actually would like to see the demand steady a bit. No one ever wants to see it go down, but if it steadies, we can catch up to it, right? And then the experience will begin to improve again. And, and I do think the demand curve will begin to plateau a little bit. You know, we've pulled forward a lot of projects into, you know, late 2020 and 2021 that would have been future, future year projects. But I, I think the, the biggest story and what everybody wants to hear is, will supply chain unkink? <laughs> will dates stabilize? Will capacity expand? And, and I think there's bound to be additional supply chain challenges. Probably won't be anything as acute as the container shortage that hit us in the fall of this year. That was multiple factors all slamming together at once. I think that will begin to improve. I think we won't probably experience the inflationary rates we've seen over the last six to nine months. But I I do think we're probably structurally at a higher inflation rate for the coming years. So pricing won't accelerate like it's been. It'll hopefully begin to plateau and move at a slightly more gradual rate. But I think the big problem for all of us is I think it's going to be really hard to expand capacity, the sheer productive capacity within the United States in particular. And that'll be a challenge. I think the same thing exists on the home construction front. If you're a general contractor, can you find more carpenters? Do you find more masons? It's tough. And and that actually helps with the first part because if the demand's still there for new homes, but the builders can't build them quick enough, then that helps to flatten the demand curve a little bit and actually extend it out into future years. And you know, personally, what I would prefer to see is not another year of 25 to 30% increases in incoming orders. I'd prefer us to be 7% increases over the next five to seven years. You right. know, give it to me yeah. in increments I can consume right. Right. as an industry will create better customer experiences. Well, I think you hit something on the head there for sure. I think the inflationary pressure of what's going on right now has driven these costs up, you know, to a level we haven't seen before. And, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I haven't seen a lot of people lower their prices after they realize they can charge more for them, right? So, you know, what happens in the future when this this does level out? I'm fortunate, right? Most of my clientele is fairly insulated, but it still matters. But I think that that kind of middle band of people who are just entering the luxury market, you know, that Alex was talking about, they're just doing this for the first time. 
between interest rates and what that means to them and inflationary pressure, coupled with lead times and all of those kinds of things, I think the market in a good way might cool a hair. I think it might just settle back down to some sense of normal and not everybody thinking they need to do everything, you know, in the next six months. But I, I do think the inflation and price increases are, are going to affect the market in the coming years for sure. Yeah. Now, Chad, you have mentioned that you felt that things already were starting to get a little better for Stark and Scalamandre. Do you think that's going to continue? Are you optimistic that the demand will sort of plateau and that you'll catch up? I mean, Alex, if you want to take 7% growth, I'll take the 30% growth year over year. I mean, <laughs> no, uh, it's a little different mindset, but no, I mean, in all seriousness, I think it's going to get better in the sense of some of the factors like the container issue, which was had so many different reasons creating those complex issues. The number of things creating these issues is, I think, going down. There's still going to be issues, but you know, we're just trying to take the approaches. Let's assume it's not getting better. What can we do? You know, we just bought four new looms to give to one of our manufacturers in India saying, we need to figure out how to get more production out of, out of your factory. You know, we, during COVID, doubled the size of our warehouse and beefed up, doubled the size of our production floor and tripled the size of our sample department. So I mean, we're kind of now taking the approach of rather than having just enough production and supply for the demand for a two or three year horizon, how do we look at a five, seven, 10 year horizon and say, let's build the infrastructure to support that now. So if there is another event that creates this delay, we're much better prepared for it. And that starts with our sampling strategy and the size of our samples and how many we order to the warehousing of all of that, to the production capacity at, at our mills. And so, you know, we're just taking the approach that if it doesn't get better, we need to make it better for us. And so what can we do and, and how can we make those investments? Because since the demand is up, the cash is in. And the question is, how do we, how do we not let this crisis go to waste? And that's kind of the phrase that we keep talking about is how do we not let this crisis go to waste and can't control what you can't control. And, and that's kind of how we're dealing with it. But I do think it will flatten a little, but I do think it's, it's the whole industry. It's not just companies like us. It's not just the luxury side. Someone having a bad experience buying home furnishing is not just having it at the high end. They're having it almost across the board, trade, retail, online. Like, you know, I was looking at a chair that was like a 52 week lead time. And I'm like, it's that's like offensive to even put a 52 week lead time on a website. Um, but that's the world we live in. And I think people right. are just, you know, getting used to it. And right. I don't think they're going to shift to spending away from home and just on experiences, maybe in the short term, but home has become more important than ever. And that's a good thing for us. All. Which is a good thing. And Margaret, what about you? They're, Lord knows they're not making any more antiques. So how do you see the year ahead? I mean, how do you think shipping will get straightened out a bit? If costs will come down? I hope so, because if you guys read that report that Cherish produced in September, it was released about how the um, antiques vintage and that resale market is just continuing to explode and predicted to explode for the next five years. So it is, you know, every year new antiques hit the market and there are trends that kind of come and go. So right now, brown furniture is coming back. People are appreciating Yay. this style. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's very welcome. So, you know, and I, there's always going to be collectors of certain niches and certain kind of looks and things like that. Look, I'll always carry Gustavian and Garden. So it's just trying to be savvy about where I'm going. I used to exclusively buy in Europe, but now I'm trying to see a little bit more local, some of the estate sales. And But I, I will say the auction houses, like the, any of those auctions are so competitive right now. And I don't love doing it that way because then everybody knows 
exactly what I paid for some things. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's not my favorite. So I'm hoping that the shipping crisis will alleviate itself and, and that will free up things. But I don't see the demand going away for my particular segment of the market. Right, right. Yeah. And I guess that is the good news for all of you guys here on this podcast and for the industry is the desire is there. As a couple of you mentioned, people are more obsessed, concerned, loving their homes than ever before. They want to improve them. And I don't think that's going away, but I do hope for all of our sakes, and especially you guys who really are on the front lines, that the demand softens a little bit or plateaus and that costs can come down a little, the shipping gets resolved. And I think this has been incredibly helpful for all our listeners who like Frank, have to deal with not only the vendors and the frustrations with that, but the clients and all of that stuff. So, you know, I really want to thank you all for taking part in this podcast today. My wonderful guests, Frank Ponterio, Alex Schuford, Margaret Schwartz, and Chad Stark. And I want to thank everyone for listening to the Cherish Podcast. You've been listening to the Cherish Podcast, brought to you, of course, by Cherish which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hanger Studios in New York. Until next time.